James chapter 3. James chapter 3. <clears throat> You've probably heard this phrase before, but when a pastor's sermon steps on the toes of those that he's speaking to, they often say that the pastor has uh, stopped preaching and gone to meddling. Well, that's what James is doing here. Uh, I hope they say that in jest. I hope they're not really con- that concerned about it. But whenever the preacher begins to, to address something that I'm doing, I can oftentimes see the preacher as meddling and not preaching anymore. Uh, well, if that's true, then James is meddling tonight. And he has overstepped his bounds in a great way, if that's the case. You saw last week in chapter 3 that he's addressing the, a topic that I believe steps on the toes of every person who reads it, every person who hears it, uh, steps on, on the toes of all of us. It is, a, it is our human nature to have a problem with our tongue. That is just human nature. Every person here, no matter who you are, no matter how spiritual you are, at one time or another has said something inappropriate or offensive or unhelpful. It's just the way we are. Uh, it's the nature of the nature of the tongue to do that. Every word spoken that is that is harmful to somebody is a sin against that person. And it's also a sin against God because every sin is a sin against God. Uh, the real goal of what James is telling us here is to never use our tongues in a way that's going to hurt somebody or hurt the work of the Lord or hurt the cause of Christ. That's what he's trying to get through to us. We are expected by God to have full control over what we say. And when we don't, it's sin, and that sin needs to be confessed, just like any other sin needs to be confessed. Now, what James is doing here for us tonight is giving us a full picture of what our tongues really are all about and the damage they can do if they're misused. And he's doing this, again, because of the tendency of our human nature to gloss over or excuse when we say something inappropriate. All kinds of ways to cover this. You know, it's just a slip of the tongue. Or it, I didn't, it didn't come out the way I wanted it to. Or I just want somebody who tells the truth. And all these sorts of, of ways to cover the fact that we've said something offensive that has been difficult or harmful to somebody else. Uh, what James wants us to see is that every wrong word spoken comes from a sinful place and must be confessed and must be controlled. Uh, I'll tell you, unbelievable harm has been done uh, by words that are spoken with the wrong motive or with a destructive intent. And we don't even know how destructive that can be sometimes. We don't see all the destruction that it causes. And so what we're doing here, and I, I'm going very slowly through this chapter because I want us to see specifically for all of us to see uh, what James is telling us to put an end to using any words or any language that does not edify or promote growth in the people who are around us. So James has stopped preaching. He's gone to meddling. And we're just going to have to put up with it because the target is each one of us. Now, as you read through, and as we went through the, the passage last week, and I'm sure you wouldn't say this, but I'm sure that there are those who could read this and say, what is the big deal? Why is he making such a, a big deal about words? They're only words, after all. How much damage can words do, or the, the words of somebody else really do? Well, I want you to look at the last part of verse 6 as we begin to answer that question tonight. Well, we, we'll read the whole chapter, the whole verse, rather. Verse 6 says, And the tongue is, is a fire, a world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, watch it now, and it is set on the fire of hell. James says our tongues are set on the fire of hell. Now, when we think about hell, a couple of things we think about. Now, certainly it is a place where lost souls go, we know that. It is also the future residence of Satan and his devils. That's where they're going to wind up eventually. And so hell is connected with Satan and with satanic influences. So when it comes to words, what do we know about Satan? Let's look at a couple of passages. Let's go to John chapter 8. Let's see what we know about Satan and the use of words. Uh, John chapter 8. When you get to John chapter 8, look at verse 44. This is probably a familiar verse, but I'd like you to look at it tonight. John chapter 8, verse 44. Now watch what it says about Satan in regard to words. 
John 8.44 says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer, speaking of Satan now. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. What do we know about Satan? We know that Satan is a liar. Everything that comes out of Satan's mouth is a lie. Satan is the original pathological liar. He has no ability whatsoever to tell the truth. He can't tell the truth at all. What else do you know about Satan? Go now, if you would, to the book of Revelation. Go back to the other direction, to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and when you get there, look at verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. <clears throat> Revelation 12, 9 says this, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren, speaking of Satan now, is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan's constant activity is to accuse you before the Father's throne. He is accusing you of sinning against God, undoing wrong things, being unfaithful to God. He does that all the time. That's what Satan's occupation is. We saw that back in the book of Job. That's exactly what he did. He challenges our walk with God and our spirituality by pointing out every time we do something wrong, every time this contrary to God's will or God's standard, he points that out to the Father and tells him what kind of a, a, a worthless people we are because of what we do. What is produced from that kind of speaking? If somebody speaks a lie and somebody accuses people of things they didn't do, what comes from that? Well, I can't give you a complete list, but I've got a few things for you. Uh, that sort of speech creates anger and dissension, and divisiveness, and sorrow, and mischief, and hatred, and defeat, and self-will, and self-righteousness. And that's just a brief list. There's a whole lot more we could add to that. Anytime a person involves himself or herself in speech that accuses or that is a lie, clearly that speech is produced from a tongue that is set on the fire of hell. That's what James says, not me. That speech produces what Satan attempts to produce with the words he uses and the messages that he sends. And clearly there's no positive result from that kind of speech. Now, I want you to look at the contrast. So go back the other way again now. Go to the book of Acts. Go to the book of Acts and go to Acts chapter 2. I want you to see the contrast of this, what our tongue should be doing, how they should be operating. Acts chapter 2. Now, I realize in Acts chapter 2, the verses we're going to read are very doctrinal. We're not going to get into the doctrines tonight. I want you to see the type that is given to us in these verses. So we're checking the type out, not the doctrine. Uh, look at Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 1. So when the, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, again, not getting into all the doctrine, but I want you to see those tongues of God come down. And the next thing says it sat upon them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. The difference is this. When those folks uh, received uh, that, those tongues came down, they were controlled by God's Spirit. The tongue that is controlled by God's Spirit does the exact opposite of what the tongue does that's set on the fire of hell. It produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, uh, gentleness, goodness, and temperance. That's how God wants us to use our tongues. That's how he wants us to do it. Uh, here's the takeaway. 
God wants us to place our tongues under the control of the Spirit of God. And God wants us to allow our tongues, allow rather the Holy Spirit to speak through us, use our tongues to speak through us. And when we have dedicated our tongues to that, God will use us. If I dedicate my tongue to anything else, it's going to be destructive and harmful and not produce what God wants us to produce. So who we dedicate our tongues to is going to result in whatever effect that comes from that. Now, go back to James chapter 3, if you would, and look at verse 7. He says, For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, what James says is this. A person who is unable to control their tongue, a person who says things that are harmful or destructive is worse than an animal. Exactly what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. An animal can be tamed. There is not one animal on earth who with the right approach and the right equipment cannot be captured and made secure. An animal has a wild nature, and yet even though you've been to the circus or been to some other place where there's been an animal program of some type, uh, those animals can be made to do some amazing things because they can be tamed with the right approach, and they cause no harm. Uh, you see, that's the difference between that and the tongue. Unless an animal is, has its territory infringed upon or is starving or is crazed in some way, it's not going to go out of its way to harm a human. It simply has no cause to do that and won't do it. And that is where be, uh, uh, animals and humans differ. Because people will go out of their way to harm somebody else. They'll go out of their way to harm somebody by saying something about them, either to them or to somebody else about them that is hurtful. And with no provocation and with no pure motive, humans will harm other humans with their tongues just because. Just because. Animals won't do that. Humans will. And James says here in that verse that nobody can tame that tongue. You might as well stop trying to control that tongue yourself. If that's the effort you're making, you might as well stop. You can't do it in your own strength. You will not be successful doing that. The only way that we get control of that tongue is what I mentioned to you just a minute ago. We submit ourselves to the control of the Spirit of God, and then that tongue is under His control, not ours. Otherwise, I am telling you, that tongue will run wild and free and harm any person who gets in the way. It will destroy him if it can. Taming that tongue takes more effort and more watchfulness and more vigilance than taming the wildest animal. That's what you're up against with that little muscle in your mouth. Exactly. And notice what he says here again. Look at verse 7 again, or rather verse 8. The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil. That's the description that James gives of your tongue through the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Your tongue is an unruly evil. He does not say your tongue is used for evil. He says your tongue embodies evil. It is evil. Now, that word unruly simply means not to follow rules. It doesn't enjoy following rules and doesn't follow rules. I worked for years as a juvenile probation officer, and we worked with children who were charged by their parents as being unruly. And what that charge meant was uh, that child was unruly at home. They couldn't control that kid. They would put consequences on them. They would set rules on that child, and that child would simply refuse to obey those rules. And the only choice that parent had was to charge them through the court with being unruly, and the hope was the court could uh, enforce rules that they were unable to enforce because the court had more serious consequences than the parent did. And oftentimes what I found as I work with those kids, a child who is unruly with their parents is unruly with everybody else. <laughs> They're simply unruly in general. Uh, they don't care whose rules they are. They break those rules. They simply chose to follow no rules that didn't suit them or got in the way of what they wanted to do. 
That's your tongue. That's your tongue. Uh, we know what Scripture says. We know how God feels about using words that destroy instead of edify. We know what the damage that our words can do. But in the heat of the moment, when we're not getting our way, or when somebody confronts us or disagrees with us, all those rules are forgotten, and a barrage of unkind and untrue words comes flying out. That's what your tongue does. And somehow, in the process of all that, we can justify it. We don't see themselves uh, as wrong. We see ourselves as totally in the right. And nothing that anybody says, including God himself, is going to change their mind about what they've said. Because it's unruly. It doesn't follow rules. It hates rules and refuses to follow them. It doesn't follow any rule that doesn't suit its purpose. If that tongue is set on doing something or harming somebody or taking somebody down, it doesn't matter what God says. They're going to do it. That tongue's going to do it. Amen. Notice also what he says about it. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. <laughs> I mean, you can't get more, much more graphic than what James is getting here. That tongue of ours is lethal. That tongue of yours can cause death. It can kill. I'm not talking necessarily about physical death, but I'm saying that tongue can cause death. Uh, we saw a large-scale example of that. We talked about it last week uh, in, in the, the words that Hitler used. His words uh, caused people to do things they never would have done had he not spoken. And the words he spoke incited the death of over six million Jews, as well as anybody who died during that war. <laughs> and those deaths all began with words, just talking, just speaking. That's all it took. How many reputations have been destroyed through the use of words? How many spirits have been broken through the use of words? How many testimonies have been destroyed through the use of words? How often has respect been lost through the use of words? How many times has somebody been cheated or lied to or manipulated or devoured through the use of words? We simply can't minimize the effect that our words have both on ourselves and on other people. We have no idea how many of God's servants have been put on the shelves because they couldn't control their tongue. They just kept saying things they shouldn't say. And God finally said, you've done it one too many times. I can't use you anymore. You've destroyed your reputation. You've destroyed your ministry. I could give you names of folks who've done that. Lost their ministry because they just couldn't shut up. <laughs> Ministries have been destroyed because someone decided to wage a war of words against some innocent believer. And God took them out of the ministry as a result. That tongue is lethal. That tongue is full of deadly poison. That tongue can destroy. And I want to stop right here and say something to you. And I just want to say it as a blanket statement. What James is saying to you does not apply to that person you know. It doesn't apply to that Christian who has a problem with their tongue. It doesn't apply to your spouse or to some other family member. That message applies to you and I. It applies to us. Don't pass this off as though this belongs to somebody else. I've got this under control. It's that other person who needs to hear it. Satan is very good at doing that to us. You know that? He can put somebody's face in your mind and say, you know what, this person needs to hear this message. As though I don't. <laughs> I've been convicted all week about this message. Uh, praise God for that. That's what God's word is intended to do. Don't get mad at God. Don't get mad at the preacher. Listen to the word of God and change it if it's a problem. Amen. And you know what? It's a problem for all of us. It's a problem. We can always do better. <laughs> This applies to you, and it applies to me. Don't let Satan get you into the way of thinking that you know somebody who really needs to know this message. Realize, I'm the one who needs to know this message. You're the one who needs to hear it. We need to hear what God has to say to us about this thing. We need to watch every word so that every word doesn't discourage or deflate or destroy somebody else. Amen. And by the way, that needs to be true whether they deserve it or not. 
They might have harmed you. They might have done something destructive to you. That does not give you license to do anything about it. We're going to talk more about that next week. Look at verse 9. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. I'm sure you've heard of the psychological, psychological condition called multiple personalities, where one person can exhibit more than one personality. Over the years of the work I've done, I've dealt with a few of those folks. It's pretty remarkable. It's also a little scary to watch it happen. <laughs> but anyway, that condition describes your tongue. Your tongue has multiple personalities. <laughs> Every person listening tonight has a problem with their tongue having different personalities. In other words, according to what James says here, our tongues can praise God in one breath, and attack someone we know in the next. I mean like that, just that quickly. Our tongues can pray to God in one moment and tear a fellow believer apart in the next moment. And those two events are totally disconnected from each other. Now, James labels those things as blessing and cursing. Blessing in this context means to speak good of somebody or to speak good of something. That's what the blessing is. The cursing, although it can refer to inappropriate language, refers specifically here to seeking harm or misfortune for somebody else, hoping that there's something bad to befall somebody. And so a person can bless God or show great reverence and great respect to God and then speak in ways that are harmful or wish harm upon somebody else. The same tongue could do both. Now, as we sit here, James says, and I think you probably would all agree with his last statement, these things ought not so to be. I agree with that. I'm sure you agree with that as well. Clearly, we should not be cursing people and praising God with the same tongue. But in the moment when the anger builds and we're offended by something, we lose track of that and verbally unload on somebody as a result, either to somebody else about them or to them directly. And we feel, again, completely justified in doing that because what they did to us or what we perceive they did to us, they had, they, they had what was coming to them, <laughs> what we'll say. So if these things ought not so to be, that means we can't allow our tongues to do both those things. And so we've got to eliminate one or the other. So which one do we eliminate? Do we eliminate praising God or do we eliminate cursing men? And please understand, whatever we choose to eliminate, we are committing to that. We are saying, if I'm going to eliminate this, I'm never going to do it again. I will stop doing it from this point on. It will never happen again. So if I say to myself, I need to stop blessing God. If I make that choice, then what I'm saying is, I never say another good thing about God. I never make thank him again for what he's done for me. I never seek his face in prayer again. I use my words to never include God in my words ever again. If I make the other choice, if I choose to stop cursing men, what that means then is I never say a bad thing about somebody ever again. No matter what they've said about me or what they've done to me or what they've said to me, I never again say anything negative about them or about what they've done. Now, it's got to be one or the other. Either I stop blessing God or I stop cursing men. Now, when I suggest to you that you ought to stop blessing God, you probably said to yourself, that's crazy. How in the world could I do that? There's no way in the world that I could ever stop blessing God. Anybody who knows him and has trusted him for salvation and received all the blessings he's given to them, there's no way in the world they could stop praising him for what he's done. So that idea seems completely preposterous to us. Why doesn't the other one seem just as preposterous to us? <laughs> Why does it seem completely unreasonable to say, I'm going to continue to bless God? But you know what? If they cross me, I might need to say something. 
Why does that idea also, why does that idea not seem just as preposterous? I'm sure in your head you're saying, you know, I'll do the one, but the other one I'm not so sure about. Uh, why does it seem impossible never to speak negatively about someone ever again? Now, we can hedge on this thing and say, well, you know, uh, talking about God is one thing. Talking about people is an entirely different matter. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, watch it, which are made after the similitude of God. He says, you're cursing somebody who is made after the similitude of God. Let's park there for a second. As much as you've heard this, I'm sure, at least that we've heard it over the years, no person on earth is born in the image of God. Now, just get that out of your head. No one here was ever born in the image of God. It's a lovely thought. The modernists love to proclaim that. It's simply not true. Uh, The New Living Translation of that particular verse says this. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. You see, they want to promote this idea that all people are made in the image of God. It's a wonderful, politically correct thing to say. Uh, Very much wishful thinking. There's nothing Bible about that, folks. Nobody in this room, nobody listening, nobody on earth was born in the image of God. Because, you see, an image is an exact likeness. When I look in the mirror, whether I like it or not, what that mirror shows me is an exact image of myself. It's exactly what I look like. So what is God's image? God's image is a live body and a live soul and a live spirit. That is God's image, a live body and a live soul and a live spirit. When Adam was made in the image of God, he got all three of those things. And as a result, he was made in the image of God. When Adam fell and sin entered the picture, that image was shattered. Why? Because at the moment he he sinned, his spirit died. He was no longer in the image of God because he now had a dead spirit. And so when Adam had a son, Seth, the Bible says this in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. You see, when sin came into the world, mankind no longer was made in the image of God. They were now made in the image of their father, of their earthly father. Every person born is born after, after Adam is born like Adam with a dead spirit. That's why you need the new birth. That's why every person on earth needs a new birth. The Holy Spirit comes in and revives that dead spirit and takes, uh, takes a dwelling place in that person and revives that spirit. Ye hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. You're made alive the day you trust Jesus Christ. So no person on earth is born in God's image. No person on earth is born in the exact image of God. But all people are born in the similitude of God. If you look at the word similitude throughout Scripture, what you're going to find, it's a likeness or a shadow of something else. Every person on earth is born with the three parts, the soul and the spirit and the body. Uh, They just don't have a live spirit, not born in his image, but born in his similitude, in his likeness. We look like him because we have those three parts, just one's not operating. And so the point that James is making here is this. Everybody that is born onto this earth has the stamp of God's creation on them. Whether they deny it or not, it doesn't make any difference. They can say they came from some primordial primordial ooze from somewhere else. They can say that all they want to. It's not true. They came from God. And God's stamp is upon them. Every person born onto this earth is born with God's fingerprints on them in terms of creation. And so when we speak evil of somebody, we are talking evil of somebody that God created, that God's stamp was upon. And the clear implication is, how do we feel that we have the right to criticize or attack something that God has made? (laughs) 
Very, very dangerous thing to do. How presumptuous is it for us to decide that we have a right to criticize God's creation? And that increases infinitely when we uh, choose to speak evil of another child of God. In that case, we're speaking evil not just of somebody of the similitude of God. We're talking evil about one of God's children. We're talking evil about one who's been made part of the body of Christ. We're talking evil about one whose God's blood has been shed for and whose standing is as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Be careful talking evil about that person. I don't think in the heat of the moment when a person uh, has really lit our fuse, we give full thought to what we're really doing. We kind of unload with our words and don't realize what we're stepping into. When we attack a fellow believer with our words, we are attacking one of God's children. Now, if you have kids, can you imagine somebody talking badly about your kid to you or to them and how you'd react to that? <laughs> that happens every time you criticize one of God's children. Uh, God takes that very, very seriously. That's his child. And if we attack anybody else, we're attacking that person who has a stamp of God's creation upon them. Either way, it's a very dangerous thing to do. At the very least, at the very least, I hope what James is telling us at least gets us to consider the consequences of what we do before we do it. (laughs) It's amazing how many things we won't do. We just simply think about what's going to happen if we do it. It stops a lot of behavior because we realize what a stupid choice it is. That's why in those times when I've been attacked by other believers, whether through a text or through Facebook or even face-to-face, I choose never to respond. I never respond to them. If they're attacking me, I never respond. If they want to work with me on it, I certainly do respond. Uh, The person attacking me may not be concerned about the territory they're stepping into, but I'm concerned about it. (laughs) i got to be very careful not to go anywhere where I might challenge God's response and challenge his judgment. And I know myself, I know if I walk into that thing, if they're attacking me and I choose to respond, there's going to be some attack back. I'm going to do the exact same thing they're doing. I'm going to begin to attack a child of God. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do my best not to do it. Let me put it to you that way. So I'm very careful not to do anything where I might challenge God's judgment. I just choose not to. I put myself in enough of those places by accident. (laughs) I need no, no reason at all to make a choice to do that. So now look at verse 11. As he continues this thought, he says, Doth a fountain send forth at the same time sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a, a vine uh, a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Now, if I could put this into my own words, here's what I think James is saying. Even creation that has no conscience and no intelligence won't do what some believers choose to do. <laughs> creation that has no conscience whatsoever won't do what some believers choose to do. Creation cannot send out two opposing things. A fountain can't produce good and bad water. It's either good or it's bad. A fig tree can't produce what it's not naturally designed to produce. And neither can a grapevine. You won't find fresh water in the Atlantic Ocean, and you won't find salt water in Lake Erie. You might find a lot of other things in Lake Erie, but you won't find salt water in Lake Erie. (laughs) So why is it that creation, with no sense whatsoever, does what makes sense? And those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, who have a live conscience and the Holy Spirit living inside us, do the wrong thing. (laughs) Makes no sense whatsoever. Well, James gives you the answer in the next verse. It's an answer that your flesh is not going to like. My flesh didn't like it when I saw it. Verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. 
We do things contrary to nature. We do things contrary to God's word and to God's standard due to a lack of wisdom and a lack of knowledge. That's why we do it. According to verse 13, that's exactly why we do it. Wisdom and knowledge, according to that verse, are shown by a person's ability to have good conversation. And again, we're aware that the word conversation in God's word applies to our entire manner of living. But in this specific case, it's referring uh, to, to our words that we use, especially specifically our manner of speech, the words we use and the things we talk about. Now, I'd like you to turn to a few scriptures. And when we look at this thing, uh, this idea of wisdom, we're not going to do a whole study on wisdom tonight. But I want you to see a few characteristics of wisdom. Go to Exodus chapter thirty five. Wisdom has a few characteristics, and I think by looking at this as we close up tonight, it's going to give us a better insight into what James is telling us. So look at Exodus chapter 35, and when you get to look at verse 30, Exodus 35, 30. And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezaleel, of the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all manner of workmanship. Now, notice it says there, God has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all manner of workmanship. This is an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament concept. Wisdom comes as God fills a person with his spirit. What that tells me is wisdom is a God-given quality that is provided to a person by the spirit of God. You see the same thing in First Kings chapter 4, verse 29. The Bible says there, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much. That wisdom came from God. It was a gift from God. And listen to what David says in Psalm 51, uh, 51, 6. He says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me, know, uh, make me to know wisdom. What's he saying there? He says, True wisdom is not something that you gain externally. True wisdom is something that God plants in the heart of a person. The demonstration of wisdom is a demonstration of what's contained in the heart. I go to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. And look at verse 6. Of course, you are well aware that book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. Look at what he says there. For the Lord giveth wisdom. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding come from the mouth of God. comes from his mouth. God's words impart wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And God takes those words that God gives and plants those words into the heart of that one who is seeking to gain wisdom from God. Now, of course, in this age, you are well aware God's words are found in God's book. And so wisdom is found in the word of God. As you read this book and study this book and memorize this book, those words are being used to impart wisdom to us. Look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Since you're in the book of Proverbs already, go a couple of pages over. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. A very familiar concept to you, I'm sure. Proverbs 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So the definition of wisdom, according to God's word, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, we're not going to get into a whole study about that tonight. Here's the bottom line to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is me understanding exactly who God is and exactly what God is capable of and getting myself into right relationship with him because of what I understand about him. That's what the fear of the Lord is. I realize who he is. 
I realize what he is capable of. And because of those things, I don't want to cross him. I put myself in the right relationship with him as a result. And then it says that same verse says knowledge of the holy is understanding. So a person understands God's standard of righteousness and abides by that standard. At that point in time, they have knowledge. A lot of stupid people out there (laughs) because they think they've got knowledge, but they don't understand the standard God has set. They choose not to live by that standard. Now, this topic of wisdom is a, is a month-long study, so I'm not going to go through it all tonight. That's just an overview. But I want to make the application now according to what James says here in verse 13 of chapter 3. If my words are out of control, if the words that come out of my mouth are wor- both words of blessing and words of cursing, what's that say about me? What it says about me is that I lack wisdom and I lack knowledge. I'm deficient in both those things. And it means specifically that I am either not in God's word or I'm not allowing God's word to get into me. It means that I, I, I am filled with some spirit, but I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. Some other spirit is controlling me. It means that I've allowed my heart to be polluted by words other than the words of God. And it means that my relationship with God is out of sync, that I don't have full understanding of who God is and what he's capable of. Whenever my words go crosswise, that's what it says. And it says all of that. My words are going to show if I'm walking with the Lord or if I'm walking out of step with the Lord. And what it means is that if I'm walking out of step, my heart has been polluted and I don't understand how I should be walking according to his word. And the words of other people also give me the indication of what their relationship with the Lord is like. Now, I can't judge, but those words are going to give me an indication. So if I'm going to cross somebody that doesn't uh, that has issues with their words, what should I do? Well, first of all, I need to take care of myself. If I find that my words aren't going well, I need to take two actions. Number one, I assess my words. I look at how I speak. I would challenge you tomorrow just to watch what you speak, say all day long. When you speak, just listen to what you're saying to yourself. Be very, very conscious of the words you use. Uh, take an assessment of your words. If you hear both blessing and cursing coming out of your mouth, If you're praising God and attacking somebody else with the same tongue, you need to get on your face somewhere and confess that to God and tell God I'm sinning with my tongue. I need to be under the control of the spirit of God. I need your words to be stuck into my heart and sink into my heart. And I need those words to come out. And I need a renewed picture of who you are and my relationship to you. It says all that. It says all that. Watch your words tomorrow and see what comes out. And you may need to do some business with God if you find your blessing and cursing with the same tongue. And number two, then, after I get that settled, if I know of other people, of other believers, whether they be friends of mine or acquaintances of mine, and they allow blessing and cursing to proceed from their mouth, God will identify that person, according to James chapter three and verse 13, as unwise. That person is not a wise person. David said this in Psalm 94, verse 8. He said, understand, understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will you be wise? David contrasts wisdom with being a fool. So if I don't have God's wisdom, I'm a fool. If a person is not wise, they are a fool. How should I respond to fools? Uh, I should have held held your hand there in uh, Proverbs. I didn't. Go back to Proverbs one more time, if you would. Go to Proverbs chapter 14. If a person that you know is a believer and they speak blessing and cursing with the same mouth, God says that person is a fool. 
How do I respond to fools according to the word of God? Proverbs 14, 7. Go from the presence of a foolish man when thou perceivest not in him the lips of knowledge. He says, when you find you're dealing with a fool, get away from him. Don't be in their presence. Look at Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20. Separate yourself from the fool, he says. Proverbs 13, 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. So here's what he's saying. My walk, my testimony, my spiritual life can be destroyed if I hang around a fool. So in this context, what he is saying is, if I know somebody who is harsh with their words, if I know of somebody who is critical of other believers, if I know of somebody who is critical of people in general, and those words come out of their mouth, while at the same time they're praising God and blessing God and telling me what a wonderful Christian they are, uh, God says, that person is a fool. Go from the presence of that foolish person. Amen. Get out of their presence. Don't hang around them. And then he says, the reason for that is because Proverbs 13, 20, if I walk with that fool, I'm going to be destroyed. I'm going to tell you something, folks, and you know this, but I want to make it clear tonight. When you hang around people who talk that way, it's going to rub off on you. Amen. I know folks who had no issue with this whatsoever until they started hanging around a fool. <laughs> and that fool changed the way they spoke. I've seen it happen in church. I've watched believers who were still good people, but in terms of having their tongue under control, it was under control until that fool showed up. And they connected themselves to that fool. And that fool talked about everybody in the church in some way or another. And pretty soon, that person was doing the same thing. A companion of fools will be destroyed. It's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin you. We are to get away from that person as far as we possibly can. Do you know it's okay sometimes to disassociate with other believers? Paul talks about that in the book of Timothy. Sometimes Paul says you just need to get away from them. When you see their life the way it is and you realize what's going on in that life is not according to what God says, you have to realize that can rub off on me if I'm not careful. Get away. Here's what we think. Here's what we think. We think that if I hang around them, I'm going to change them. You know how little that happens? <laughs> you know how hard it is to change a fool? Almost impossible to change a fool. Don't think somehow you're going to reclaim that person. I, that's a great idea, a wonderful thing. But if you go down with a ship, folks, you haven't accomplished anything. <laughs> so instead, pull away. Pray for them. Be friendly to them. Don't associate with them. Get out of their presence. Because your walk is going to be contaminated by their hate and by their anger. And the bottom line to all it is, God will not be glorified from that. God will lose his glory. You don't want to do that. Make sure God is glorified through your life, not taken away from it. <laughs> and that happens as we re remove ourselves from fools, as we assess our own words and take, keep track of what we need to be doing and just take care of ourselves. Amen. And God will bless that for sure. Amen. Let's stand.